there's been a unanimous conclusion by all the American intelligence services that Russia tried to monkey wrench the 2016 election to help elect Trump. Are you saying that Russia is still a bigger enemy to U.S. than China is today? Why didn't Donald Trump pay taxes? I'm a New Yorker. I've known this guy since the 70s. He's a con man. Whether you like the way he lives his personal life, I mean, if you think that never happened, you're a fool. All right, we'll stipulate that Donald Trump is not a saint. Go on. This guy's a billionaire. He parties. They love him. He's great. He's always on TV. Letterman, Leno. Why the hell would you run for office and ruin your life? He's a wrecking ball. He was trying to build a luxury hotel in partnership with the Soviet government. We still have to have a bet. So how about we make the bet on the presidency? Are you confident enough to make it Biden-Trump? I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to vote for Biden. Our democracy is in trouble, my friend. It's under attack. It's under attack by the Russians, and it's under attack by the president of the United States. My guest today won the 1988 Pulitzer Prize for national reporting as an investigative reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer on black budget spending at the Pentagon and the CIA. Uh, he's a graduate from uh, School of Journalism at Columbia University. He's written many different books, Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA, Enemies of History of the FBI, One Man Against the World, The Tragedy of Richard, uh, Richard Nixon, and his recent book, The Foley and the glory, America, Russia, and the political warfare, 1945 to 2020. My guest today, Tim, Tim Weiner. Tim, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. You bet. Thank you. Okay, so Tim, some of us wake up in the morning and we want to follow stats on the NBA to find out who had a good game yesterday in baseball. Some want to read a comic book. Some want to Netflix and chill. Some want to read a romance novel. Why are you so obsessed with studying the CIA and the FBI? Well, I'll tell you, uh, when I was a younger reporter, way back in the 20th century, uh, I became very interested in uh, what was going on in the Reagan administration. They were selling weapons to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, skimming the profits, and giving them to the anti-communist uh, guerrillas in Central America. And uh, people got in a lot of trouble for that, including the President of the United States. So I wanted to know how did the secret operations of the government work? The biggest secret operation of the time, 1987, was the CIA was sending hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons to the Afghan Mujahideen, the holy warriors in Afghanistan, who were fighting the Soviet army, who had occupied Afghanistan at the end of 1979. So reporters didn't go to Afghanistan, not with the Mujahideen. Maybe they'd fly in with the Red Army in the Kabul, uh, but they didn't go into the side of, of the Afghan rebels. And I said, well, I'm young, wasn't married then, didn't have any kids then. I said, I'm, I'm gonna do that. So before I went off to Afghanistan, I called up the CIA that was running this huge covert operation. So huge that you know it was hard to conceal it. It was like trying to hide an elephant with a handkerchief. So uh, I called up the public information officer at the CIA. That is a guy. There is a public information officer at our most secret intelligence agency, the CIA. And I said, hey, uh, I'm going off to Afghanistan and you guys often do country briefings for journalists who are going off to strange countries. How about a briefing on Afghanistan? And he told me to stick it where the sun don't shine. So off I went to Afghanistan. Why would they want to talk about a secret operation, right? So I went to Afghanistan for three months. 
I saw a Stinger missile fired at a MiG, Soviet MiG. I saw the brave Mujahideen fighting the Red Army. I saw them fight and die. And I came back to Washington. And I hadn't been back at my desk for more than a day, and the phone rang. Guess who? Same person. Yeah, that's a guy from the CIA. Now he's really uh, friendly. Hey, Tim, how you doing? How'd you like to come in for that briefing now? So I walk in to get invited to the CIA headquarters. Yeah. Seven miles up the Potomac River from Washington, out in the woods. And I go through checkpoint one, checkpoint two, checkpoint three, into the headquarters of the CIA. And I look up on the left-hand wall, and there inscribed in really big gold letters from the Gospel of John, it says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, I'm hooked at that point. I decided that I was going to cover the CIA like other reporters cover the cops or the courts. And that's what I've done for most of the rest of my life since then. Tim, let me ask you, did they ever try to recruit you? Did, did CIA no. ever say, well, if, if a guy like this, you have the courage to go out there and do this, what if we come recruit you? No, you know, that's a nice fantasy, but no, that never happened that way. You know, people don't really understand what the CIA is, what the CIA does. They think it's either, you know, James Bond flies into a foreign capital, makes love to a beautiful woman, has two martinis, overthrows the government, leaves on the midnight plane. Yeah. <laughs> That's really not the way it works. Um, it's a dirty, difficult, dangerous business, and people get burned. And sometimes lives are at stake. Sometimes the fate of nations is at stake. You know from your own personal history, your family history, that the CIA decided it would be a good idea to overthrow the freely elected leader of Iran in 1953. Mossadegh. And put the Shah on the peacock throne. The Shah was a great friend of the United States, bought hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of our weapons. Uh, but the consequence of that 25 years later was the rise of the Ayatollahs and the fall of the Shah. And here we are today, 40 years later. So The Folly and the Glory, my new book, is about America, Russia, and political warfare from 1945 to 2020. People think the Cold War was one thing, and the Cold War has been over for 30 years, and now it's now. But no, there's a through line from the end of World War II to this present moment. These two nations, America and Russia, have been at war with each other. But it's political warfare. It's the way you go to war without nuclear weapons, smart bombs, or sending in the Marines. We couldn't go to war that way because if we did, our nations would be reduced to smoking, radiating ruins in a matter of two hours. So we had to go to war with espionage, sabotage, subversion, secret operations. And that struggle never ended. It didn't end when the Cold War was over. You can see it right now today because Vladimir Putin is running a multitude of covert operations trying to damage our democracy. Pick up paper, turn on the news, see it happening every day. He ran probably the most brilliant covert operation since the Trojan horse back in the last election, rubbing salt in our wounds, deepening our division, disinformation, propaganda, fake news, 
and he's doing it again right now. The difference is he's got the president of the United States and I doing the same thing. And our intelligence services are on red alert because if Putin succeeds, it could be the death of American democracy. That is what this book is ultimately about. So you're, you're somebody that has done research for decades. I think that's a fair assessment to make. You've been in this world for a while. Uh, 35 uh, years. Know, how many years? 35. That, that is a long time, which means you've been reading up on this pretty much every article and any article that has to do with this topic. And last doing my years. own reporting and my own travel and my own research. That's right. So, so the question I would have for you, uh, for somebody that, you know, is running a business, I'm, I'm uh, uh, running a couple of businesses myself and the audience is a business, uh, a lot in, in the world of business. Sure. We hear for the longest time the enemy was Russia, right? Even in Rocky Four, it's Drago going against, you know, Rocky and, you know, everybody's looking around the world. My mother's side, they're from Baku, Azerbaijan, you know, they're sure. from Russia. So Armenians who escaped, the Armenian genocide come to Iran. My dad's a Syrian. I lived in Iran 10 years. So we all saw Russia as the big enemy. But from my perspective and what I see, and I'm curious to know what you think about this, it, it seems to me that that position of enemy of the state or en enemy of the world today has been, you know, Russia's been dethroned today by China. It seems to me that even on the left and the right, what they both agree on, they don't agree on a lot. You saw the debate the other day. They don't agree on a lot. But if there's one thing they both agree on, the fact that neither side trusts China um, more than any other country before. Are you saying that Russia is still a bigger enemy to U.S. than China is today? The Russian and the Chinese intelligence services are as different as night and day. Okay. The Chinese intelligence service is and has been for decades, primarily interested in economic espionage. They want to steal trade secrets. They want to steal technical secrets. I mean, you go back, you know, when you and I were young, you couldn't get a ball bearing in China. You couldn't have get machine tools. Since the 1960s, Chinese spies in America have been desperately trying to steal technological knowledge, technological expertise, trade secrets. The Russians have a completely different outlook on how they run their espionage and intelligence operations. I'm curious. They have been interested since the 1950s, and it's a continuous line, it didn't end when the Cold War ended, in attacking our national security agencies, attacking the FBI, attacking the CIA, in undermining our faith in democratic institutions and in rubbing salt in the wounds of American society, like race. Disinformation has been one of their most powerful weapons. For example, did you ever hear that the CIA killed President Kennedy? Ever hear that one? I've, I've, I've read all the conspiracy theories on Kennedy and that's yeah. one of them, yes. Ever hear that the FBI assassinated Martin Luther King? Yes. Ever hear that AIDS was invented in an army germ warfare laboratory in Maryland? I have not heard that one. Now millions of Americans have and believe it. Then you have been struck by a KGB disinformation operation. The KGB set up a Department of Disinformation in 1959. 
Disinformation is a Russian word, desinformatsia. Disinformation is not propaganda. Disinformation is a deliberately disguised lie meant to afflict and affect public opinion and public trust. Propaganda is one thing. America's number one, that's, you know, benign propaganda. What's called black propaganda or disinformation is a deliberately disguised and concealed lie that undermines your sense of reality. They invented this. They're the world's greatest expert at it. And look around you today. Disinformation is damaging our democracy. And that is a triumph of Russian intelligence and a triumph of the KGB hood who runs Russia, Vladimir Putin. Uh, 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 Tim, what what is the outcome of all three? So, if if and that's a very good way the way you put it. You said Russia's economic espionage, so they simply want to be the most powerful. Other way around. I'm sorry, China's China. economic espionage. China's economic espionage. So their outcome is more. Let's create wealth and become the most powerful economic uh, uh, nation in the world, et cetera, et cetera. China's attack. Russia's attacking national secret agencies. Uh, whether it's CIA, FBI, disinformation, that's what they're doing. And in U.S., you kind of talked about the angle of propaganda. It's the greatest country in the world, you know, American dream, all this other stuff. What is the outcome of China? What is the outcome of Russia? And what is the outcome of U.S., in your opinion? I mean, what is the desired outcome? What are what they is trying the, to what do? What is the vision? Maybe a better word is a vision. Right. What is the vision? What vision are they trying to uh, turn right. into a reality? You and I are old enough. Certainly I am to remember when China was desperately poor. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the 1970s, Nixon went to China, as you know, and uh, the desired effect, the desired outcome is to say, of Nixon's rapprochement with Russia was to divide Russia and China. There was still a belief then that Russia and China were a global monolith of communism. Uh, trying to overthrow American democracy. Well, come to find out through good intelligence produced by the CIA, Russia and China have hated, hated each other's guts since the end of World War II. They were not a monolith. So it was imperative for the Chinese to try and create wealth, to try and lift their country up from mass starvation and poverty. Mm -hmm which existed well into the 1970s. And one way they do this is to send tens of thousands of students and businessmen into the United States. And a surprisingly large percentage of those people are told by the Chinese government and by the Chinese intelligence service, you need to go steal secrets, get an education, we'll pay for it. But steal what you can, learn what you can, but take what you can and bring it back home and you will be rewarded. The Russian intelligence services. Now remember, the US only set up an intelligence service, the CIA in 1947. The Russians have been at this since Peter the Great, okay? They are very, very good at what they do and they play a long game. We're not that great. At, we're Americans. You know, secrecy and deception are not our strong suits. They are very good at secrecy and deception. 
they send three kinds of agents. One is the sleeper agent who comes over, lives a normal life with a fake passport and a fake identity, pretending to be anything but a Russian spy. Uh, the FBI investigation called Ghost Stories turned into the very popular TV series, The Americans. So everybody knows how that works, the sleeper agent, right? Then there are people posing as diplomats who are spies, right? They're not the second secretary of the, so of the Russian embassy in Washington. They're not, you know, uh, the second in command of the Russian delegation at the United Nations. They're spies working for Vladimir Putin. And they are attempting to recruit Americans to work for them. They have been very, very good at this. One of the stories I tell in The Folly and the Glory is how the Russians and the Soviets before them cleaned America's clock going back to the 1930s. In the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, they had spies at the Manhattan Project and they stole the secret of the atomic bomb. They had spies at the State Department. They had spies at the Pentagon, at the FBI, at the OSS, the wartime intelligence service that became the CIA. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, they had the chief of Soviet counterintelligence at the CIA, Aldrich James, was a spy for the Kremlin. The head of the counterintelligence branch of the FBI, who was in charge of spying on the Soviets, Robert Hansen, he was working from the Kremlin from 1979 to 2001. They have penetrated our society and they continue to do it today. The third kind of Russian agent is the agent of influence. For example, in 1937, a United States Congressman named Samuel Dickstein, represented the Lower East Side here in New York, where I live, was chairman of the House Immigration and Naturalization Committee. He walked into the Soviet embassy, sat down with the Soviet ambassador, United States Congressman, and said, I can do things for you. I can sell you fake passports for your spies. I can hold hearings against Samuel, uh, against uh, Stalin's enemies here in the United States. And he did that for three years. And he was paid handsomely. The congressman was so greedy that the KGB gave him a code name, Crook. He was an agent of influence. And that is the third kind of Russian spy inside the United States. And that's someone in a position of power and authority who can affect public opinion or public policy that aids Russia. And I submit to you, I'm not alone in saying this now, so buckle up. President Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, the former head of the CIA, Mike Hayden, the former head of the CIA who succeeded him, John Brennan, and the multitude of former CIA and FBI officers that I talked to for this book, agree that the President of the United States today, the man in the White House, is an agent of influence for Russia. And that is a national security nightmare. You're saying the pre president of President Trump is an agent of influence for Russia right now? This is the definition of an agent of influence. Which is the last person, one. Yes. Let, can I unpack person, that for a second? Let me unpack that for a second with you. So so, so uh, sleeper agent is the first one, fake passport, fake identity, 
you know, they just kind of go to this country and start learning what's going on, fake passport, fake identity. Second one is the diplomats, uh, which are spies. They recruit Americans. That's the second kind. The third kind is the agent of influence, Sam Dickstein, KGB, gave him the code crook. So the third kind, Sam Dickstein, is he recruited by the KGB or they identify him or he just leans towards them? What do you mean? Can you unpack what the meaning of that is? He volunteered. He did it for the money. You think Trump is doing that for money? I don't know why Trump is doing it. Okay. Remember the definition of an agent of influence. A person in position of authority or power who can influence public opinion or policy in Russia's favor. Is there any question in your mind that Donald Trump has done that? He has kissed Putin's ring. He has kowtowed to him. He has, when Russians put bounties on American soldiers in Afghanistan and those soldiers die, Trump does nothing about it. He refuses to push back on Putin. And as I said, the people I talked to for this book on the record and the people I've talked to for a podcast I've done based on this book called Whirlwind, on the record, former heads of the CIA, former chiefs of Russian operations at the CIA, former FBI counterintelligence agents, Trump's own national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. They say that Trump is aiding and abetting Putin. Why? Why? Okay. Is the great mystery of our time. Yes. Why does he do it? Why does he bend his knee to Putin? I raised the question of why, and I have several theories about it. I'd love to hear it. A few days ago, my old newspaper, the New York Times, published details from Trump's tax return. Read that story? I did, all of it. Trump owes, he's personally on the hook, okay, hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. The grant total is 421 million. He is on the hook for about three quarters of that, personally, not the Trump organization. To whom does he owe that money? And who will help him pay it back? Now, you know about security clearances, right? Mm-hmm. You're ex-military. I do. You know something about the wor- how the world works. There's levels to it. What is the number one red flag for somebody who's getting a security clearance? Financial challenges, financial difficulties. Okay. And the reason for it is motivation, meaning you will be desperate to make a deal that may be... Worse than that, look... The Russian intelligence services are very good at penetrating financial institutions, okay? They have a very close and very illicit set of relationships with Deutsche Bank, the German bank that loaned hundreds of millions of dollars to Donald Trump after his sixth bankruptcy when no one else would touch him, okay? They know who Donald Trump owes that money to, and they can hold this over his head compromising information, compromat, as they would put it. That's one theory of the case. There is another theory of the case, a little less scary, perhaps. An agent of influence, what does he do? He's not stealing secrets. He's using his influence to affect public opinion and public policy. And by the way, this is not my definition. This is the definition in the American counterintelligence handbook. Putin has flattered him. Putin has given him political support, openly 
and covertly, given Trump's vanity, his ego, maybe all Putin has to do is influence him and win influence in return. That is personally my theory of the case, because I don't have knowledge of who Trump owes that money to, but he doesn't know it to the federal credit union, I'll tell you that. So we got two of them so far. So the first one is the theory is finance out of the $400 million, give or take 421. Three quarters is his own debt. Deutsche Bank, who's going to help him out here? Is there a finance possibly linked to Russia? No one knows. Second one is Putin flattered him. He's giving him love back. So maybe that's a way that that's taking place. Is there any other ones that you have? Donald Trump first went to Moscow in 1987. He had a Czech wife to whom he was unfaithful and a pronounced taste for Slavic women. None of that matters. He was trying to build a luxury hotel in partnership with the Soviet government across Red Square from the Kremlin. If the KGB didn't put his target, a target on his back at that moment, we got a bridge here in Brooklyn that connects with Manhattan. Would you like to buy it? It would have been criminally negligent of the KGB not to target Donald Trump at that point. And we won't know the answer to the question of why Trump behaves this way until the CIA recruits the guy in the Russian intelligence service who has seen a thick file that says D. Trump on the cover. But I guarantee you that file exists and that file has existed since 1987. Okay. So, so that's a, that's a different angle. He went there in 87. So wanted to build a hotel in partnership with Soviet government. It's uh, behooves the KGB model of a regime to hold them accountable without getting anything in return. I can see that part. Okay. Is there any other ones that you have in, in, outside of those three? Okay. So that hotel, that luxury hotel in Moscow, Trump was still trying to build it in 2015 and 2016 when he was running for president. He was gonna make a lot of money off that hotel. He was looking at $300 million, which is about the sum of money that he's personally liable for on debts that are coming due two, three years from now. His uh, business associate in this, a convicted felon named Felix Sater, who happened to be in partnership business, partnership with the Trump organization, dangled a $50 million penthouse at the top of this hotel in front of Putin. Throw it in, deal sweetener. Donald Trump said at the time when he was running for president that he had no business interest in Russia, but he did, a major business interest that if it had gone through and he didn't become president, which looked like a pretty good bet four years ago, right? It would heal him financial, this deal. And he was asked about it. Do you have any business interests in Russia? He was asked about it on the campaign trail. And he said, no, I have no business interests in Russia. Why is he lying? I don't have an answer to that. Is it because he lies for sport? Because he likes to engage in what he calls truthful hyperbole? Or did he have something to hide? These are questions that I explore in the last chapters of this book. And they need to be answered. Now, you'll recall that in the spring of 2017, Donald Trump fired the FBI director, Jim Comey. And he said 
on TV with Lester Holt on NBC News that he'd fired him because the FBI was investigating the connections between Team Trump and Team Putin in the 2016 campaign. This set off a rather large red flag at FBI headquarters. The Bureau, the FBI had just been decapitated. Why? Trump told them why. It was because of the Russia investigation. So at that time, it took about 12 days, the time between Comey's firing and the appointment of Robert Mueller as the special counsel, with a very limited brief to look into connections between Team Trump and Team Putin. Mueller never looked at his financials. At FBI headquarters, the senior counterintelligence agent who was going to run this case said it was like those 12 days were like the Cuban Missile Crisis. The difference was that the Cuban Missile Crisis lasted 13 days and it had a happy ending because the FBI set out. Can you imagine how hard this was? To mount a counterintelligence investigation of the President of the United States to determine the answer to the questions I just raised. Why? Why did he behave this way with Putin? Why did he fire the FBI director to kill the Russia investigation? That investigation never happened. It was strangled in its crib at the highest levels of the Trump Justice Department. And that is why we do not know the answer to these questions. That investigation never happened. It vanished into thin air. We've covered a lot uh, uh, so far right now. So you said the first one, which is $421 million in debt. Three quarters of it is personal Deutsche Bank. Great. That's the first theory. Second one is Putin flattered him. Third one is his trip to 1987 to Moscow to build a hotel with Soviet Union, team up with them, and they had to hold him accountable. They're not going to let him go and just not hold him hostage because the model was you better, you know, do something. There's got to be something in it for us. The fourth one is Felix Sater. $50 million penthouse that was offered, and Felix was a former felon. And then uh, the last one you just discussed right now with Mueller, which there wasn't a happy ending after 12 days. So I have this question for you. I have this question for you. So for me, I'm Middle Eastern, and I don't, I don't know if you've done a lot of business with Middle Easterns. Middle Easterns don't trust anybody. You know, they're skeptical. They're skeptical with everybody and anybody. They don't trust their kids, their family, their friends. Well, now, their I, I would say that that's not unique to... Uh, the Middle Eastern mind. I, I have spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. I'd like to take credit for our tours in Afghanistan. I'd like us to own it, that we have that identity. Okay. It, it makes I us grant you that. <laughs> so, you know, for, 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 for us, you know, the painting behind me has got two books on the, on the table that they're debating and all these folks that are debating there. Uh, one is uh, Atlas Shrugged. The other one is Communist Manifesto. And one is saying one is right. The other one says the other one is right. They're just debating back and forth. And that's the Shah in the middle, by the way, with Milton Friedman, MLK, JFK, Lincoln, Einstein. The two guys in the back you don't see is me, Tupac, and Senna. Anyways, so for me, I like That's a great painting. Well, thank you. I had I'm a looking local painter commission. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. So for me, I like to hear from both sides. And I like to bring people here from both sides to kind of hear. If we want to do a debate on capitalism, I'll bring Richard Wolf and we'll talk for 90 minutes. I'll bring Slavoj Zizek to talk about communism and I'll bring somebody on the capitalist side. Let's just kind of talk about it and see what's out there. What do you say to the recent report that came 24 hours ago? Intelligence official urged Trump's spy chief not to disclose unverified Russian claims about Clintons. Officials at CIA, NSA, and officer 
Office of Director of National uh, Intelligence warned disclosure to Congress would give credibility to Kremlin-backed material. And here's a statement that was made on September 7th by uh, Graham asking a question to Comey. You don't remember getting an investigatory lead from the intelligence community. September 7th, 2016, U.S. intelligence officials forwarded an investigative referrals to James Comey and his team regarding Clinton's approval of a plan about Trump as a means of distraction. Uh, Graham asks Comey Wednesday. Comey says new information that Hillary Clinton drummed up Russia controversy to vilify Trump doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell. And then it continues a little bit more saying, what do you mean it doesn't ring a bell? I don't remember. So the reason why I bring this up, the reason why I bring this up, and then I'll turn it over to you. You can go, well, I'll listen to you. I bring this up because I had an FBI agent on the other day, probably a month and a half ago, and he came across as somebody that wasn't too, uh, uh, he was a little bit embarrassed about talking about being an FBI agent. He's the guy that took McDonald's down. I don't know if you remember when McDonald had that whole Monopoly scandal with $24 million where the guy was holding on to the Monopoly thing and FBI eventually got a, anyway, so he was one of the FBI agents that did that. America doesn't trust FBI today. America doesn't trust Comey today. America doesn't trust CIA today. How does somebody like Comey, who's good friends with Clinton family, saying it doesn't ring a bell? So I totally hear here. what you're saying on this side, but what do you say to the people that are saying, I don't trust Comey? Hang on here, because that's a lot to unpack. Please. All right. Let's talk about the first part of what you said, which is that the guy who Trump appointed very recently to be the director of national intelligence is a congressman named John Ratcliffe. And John Ratcliffe knows about as much about intelligence as I know about theoretical astrophysics, which is to say not a lot. Trump put him there to control the flow of intelligence about what Russia is doing to us right now, my friend, from Congress and from the American people. John Ratcliffe, two days ago, took a piece of Russian disinformation, specifically the idea that Hillary Clinton monkey-wrenched the 2016 election and fed it uncorroborated, worse than uncorroborated, identified as Russian disinformation, had a big, like, do not believe sticker stamped on it by the CIA and the FBI, and he fed it into the public consciousness. Why? To make us believe that there are no facts and there is no truth. Let me take you back. Do you remember when Trump and Putin were in Helsinki at a press conference in July 2018? I do. Both stand there, Trump and Putin. And a reporter asked them both. So there's been a unanimous conclusion by all the American intelligence services, there are 17 of them, by the way, that Russia tried to monkey wrench the 2016 election to help elect Trump and defeat Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump says, well, you know, my director of national intelligence, same position I just told you about, but this guy knew about intelligence. My director of national intelligence tells me that everybody in the United States intelligence community thinks it's Russia on the one hand. On the other hand, I got Putin here and he tells me it wasn't Russia. And I say, I don't see any reason why it should be Russia. 
he's believing Putin's denial over the mountain of evidence collected by his intelligence services. And then Putin says something equally important. Nobody remembers this. Putin says, well, I'm translating here, but I'll do it in a Russian accent. Well, as to who can be believed and who cannot be believed, no one can be believed. There is no truth. There are no facts. That is the pointed end of the spear of Russian political warfare. And our president of the United States carries that spear, my friend. There are no facts and there is no truth. But that can be said about both sides, though, Tim. I mean, you know, we can no, say that both, about both sides. Both sides, me, my friend. That's but that's I'm both talking sides. about a very specific question. Do you think America is trying to overthrow the Russian government right now? No. Right. So that's one side. The other yeah. side is: Do you think Russia is trying to screw with American democracy? Yes. Ah, there you're both sides. Well, what does that have to do with? Oh, so you're saying the fact that Trump said, "Ah, if he's saying it, I believe him." Like, like that. That. that okay, I get that. And and look, I'm not going to say anything. The leader of Russia, who is running this intelligence operation and is running yeah. it right now, over the entire power of American intelligence, he's the one trashing the FBI. Yeah, he's the one trashing the CIA. Well, they deserve he's it. He's the one trashing American diplomats abroad calling them human scum. He's a wrecking ball. Yeah. He's doing the Russians' work for them in the, sphere, in the sphere of national security. That's bad news, my friend. So I got a question then. I got, I got, a, I got a question for you. And, and I sincerely, listen, if, if you say I absolutely degree, disagree with what you're saying, trash my uh, statement. Do I'm not going to take it personally because I'm, tr I'm trying to get I'm trying to see both sides of the argument here. Just tell me, me Pat, you're, you're me absolutely too. wrong. So, so say for for example, you know, for me, I sit there and um, you know how you said there is a, a potential of motive. So who's he thinking the Deutsche Bank, the three hundred million dollars, say three quarters of it is personal debt. Who's going to help him pay that off? And you know, sometimes when you recruit somebody in the military, if you have too much debt, they're worried about you because if somebody from the enemy offers security to pay off your debt, you got to secure. Of course, all this stuff. I remember all of this. We had a guy that came in. The only way they let the guy join the army was he had to pay off his $45,000 of debt before he went in because to them it was concerned that that could be used as a you know way to persuade him to be willing to share information, which I get there that. I, to I totally understand that part. I get that. But to me, you know, like let me give you from the innocent standpoint, this guy had a great life before becoming a president. You know, you have to realize he's got an incredible life. He, whether you like the way he lives his personal life, Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal. I mean, if you think that never happened, you're a fool. Whether you think, you know, the lavish lifestyle he lived, large, not driving women, all this stuff. Okay. You know, is he a, a you know, cocky, you know, I'm the greatest, that kind of a mindset. When he walks into the room, I'm the person that walks into the room. He pushes the other prime ministers out because I'm here. I don't think anybody disagrees that because we see that on tape. But you're worth, say, at the lowest, $2.7 billion. And he said he was $10 billion to be higher on the Forbes list. Let's just say he did that to be recognized higher. But let's just say he's worth a couple billion dollars. And but he's not. But, but you're you saying he's not. Did you read that New York Times story? Did you read? I did, but you're, if, you're somebody, if you're somebody that wants credibility, you have to also realize that 
That New York Times story is given to us by a person that leaked information that's anonymous that we don't really know to see the papers because it's illegal because it could be a former IRS employee or existing IRS employee. So we cannot also naively just choose to believe it because we want to believe it. We have to say if it is, not it is. It's an if it is, not an it is. It's a big difference. You're a journalist. Hang on here. Yeah. Let's posit. Sure. That the New York Times didn't make up the biggest story. Okay. I worked for the New York Times for 16 years. Probably have his tax return. Okay, give me that much. I don't disagree that they don't have yeah, it. What I'm saying is the fact that we haven't seen everything for you and I to jump to conclusion that everything's not. true. Of course not. Sure. So, why didn't Donald Trump pay taxes for ten out of the last fifteen years before he came president? Because he lost tens of millions of dollars hand over fist. He's a terrible businessman. In depreciation. He's had six bankruptcies. He yeah. built an image of himself on The Apprentice, an image of an incredible, brilliant billionaire businessman. And he sold that image to tens of millions of people across the United States. You've got to understand this. I'm a New Yorker. I've known this guy since the 70s. He's a con man. He's a grifter. He's a hustler, and he's conned the people in the United States for a long time now. And the con, the long con, is going to be over. What's going to happen to him when he loses the invisibility cloak of presidential power? Manhattan DA, right across the river, is going after the financials of the Trump Organization. The Manhattan DA, right across the river, is going to see those tax returns. I'll make you a bet. Dinner at your favorite restaurant. On Dinner the- at your favorite restaurant. Okay, in New York. No, I love I love New York. On, right. on me, anywhere you want to go. All right, let's assume that the restaurants will be back open again in a year or two. We're not going to know. <laughs> we're, we're not going to know how this bet comes out. Sure, okay. sure. I will bet you dinner at the best restaurant in New York. Okay. That when Donald Trump loses the invisibility cloak of presidential power on January 20th, mm-hmm. he will be the target of multiple criminal investigations here in New York. And he's going down. So, so is the bet the fact that he'll be targeted or he's going to go down? Because I do agree he'll be targeted, but the bet is on going down. All right, let's refine the bet. Let's refine the bet. It's him going down because I know for a fact. I'm not saying he's going to do the, you know, be in an orange jumpsuit in two years. I'm going to say he's going to be under criminal indictment in New York. I I think he will be. I I wouldn't bet that because I agree he would. You're not going to take my bet. No, because I know he's going to be because there are a lot of people in the city of New York that hate this man. This is not a matter of hate. But I do think it is. It's a matter of law. I don't know. I, I think it's bigger than that, though. I think you have to realize when 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 uh, when emotions gets involved in politics, people show their true colors. And, you know, when, when you see two competitors fighting and there is a deeper emotion involved, I mean, people should like when one time I remember one time Oscar De La Hoya was fighting. I don't know who he was fighting. He was fighting this one guy. The guy started talking about his wife. And De La Hoya finally got up and he said, no, you crossed the line. 
You cross mm-hmm. the line. You say something about my wife, it's over. What was the guy's name? Can you find out which boxer told something about it? I remember it? exactly showman. what you're talking about. You know about. what I'm talking about. It was a showman. He started saying stuff to his wife. He says, and in Spanish, he told him, you come after my family, you come after my heritage, you come after my wife, it's over. Game one. He kicked the his thing tail, happened right? Before you were born with a great boxer named Jersey Joe Walcott. His opponent questioned his masculinity. Walcott hit him so hard that he died. He I, I wouldn't be surprised because... Okay. So I, but this, so, is not, this is not a battle that's going to be fought under the rules of the Martini to Queensbury. This is a battle... This is not warfare. This is not a cage match on WWE, okay? This is the law, and the law is coming for this man. But, but, uh, but let me go a little deeper with you. Let me ask my question. Let me ask my question and then attack the question. Okay, let me ask the question. We're having a good time here. So, so, so again, you're worth billions, okay? Allegedly. Let's say he is. Let's say he is worth billions, okay? You have the nice penthouse. You have all these buildings with your name on them. Yeah, you've had six bankruptcies. You know, as a business person, if you're in the world of business, I've been a lot of billionaires. And one thing billionaires have in common, the average billionaire has three bankruptcies. That's just the number out there. So it's very huh. common amongst billionaires because okay. some things just don't work out. That's very normal. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's like in the military. If you're in the military for 20 years and you've been married to the, for, to the same woman for 20 years, you're a saint because it doesn't happen often. The other day, I interviewed, we, we had. All right, we'll stipulate that Donald Trump is not a saint. Go on. Okay, okay, so there we go. But the point I'm trying to make to you is this guy's a billionaire. He parties. He goes to all the shows. They love him. He's great. He's always on TV. Letterman, Leno. Whether they like him or not, they know he brings eyeballs. Wrote a book, ordered a deal. He's got a show, Prentice, 15 seasons, got money. His kids are doing okay. He's all over the place on TV. Gets invited to all the big parties. Has the golf course. Has Mar-a-Lago. Why the hell would you run for office and ruin your life? I mean, what think, is the motive? What do you think the answer is? I See, have a theory. I don't have, I'll give you all the theories if you want to go through the theories, but if your theory I'll give you is, mine. okay, tell me. I don't think he thought he was going to win. Okay. I thought he thought it would be good for the brand. And he needed to protect the brand because he was up to his keister in debt. That's why. Why do you like him so much? Because I love America. I'm an immigrant too. My mother ran from the Nazis. My father ran from the Nazis. My father met my mother on a blind date here in New York in 1953. They were married three weeks later at Fort Hood. Wow. Or the biggest military base in America in Texas. They were married for 50 years. Wow. Uh, I love American democracy. I think it's the greatest system of government ever invented. Or as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst system of government except for all the others. Our democracy is in trouble, my friend. It's under attack. It's under attack by the Russians, and it's under attack by the President of the United States. We're going to have an election in less than five weeks after we're talking, 33 days. The President says he's not going to accept the outcome of the election if he loses. He said that, right? Well, Hillary said Biden shouldn't either for, for a full intensive purposes. 
I'm talking about the president of the United States. I'm talking about Hillary, the, the face of the Democratic Party. Hillary Clinton is not the issue here, my friend. I'm, I'm trying to have Donald some Trump, fun with you uh, here because Tim Donald is- Donald Trump is the issue. Okay. The president of the United States said in the debate the other day, Yeah. I don't care if I don't win, it's a fraud. Yeah. And I'm not leaving. Okay. You've lived and worked in countries that are not functioning democracies. Absolutely. So have I. Democracy is a very fragile thing. It's an experiment. And if that happens, the guy loses and he says, it's a fraud, I'm not leaving. Our 243-year experiment yeah. in democracy is in deep, deep trouble. I don't want to see that happen. So who do you think will be better for the job, Biden or Trump? I'm going to vote for Biden. I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to vote for Biden because I think Trump. All right. Let me tell you something. So for this book, and I'm trying to get people interested in here, The Folly and the Glory, and for this podcast that I just dropped called Whirlwind, which is based on this book. Nice. I interviewed General Michael Hayden. You remember Mike Hayden? Mm -hmm. General Michael Hayden, head of the National Security Agency under President George W. Bush, head of the CIA under George W. Bush, patriot, deeply conservative, four-star general. So, so we talked. And I asked him just what you're asking me. I said, what do you think is going to happen? Because, you know, the CIA is supposed to be good at predicting things, right? Here's what General Hayden said, four-star general, American patriot. He said, if Donald Trump wins this election, American democracy is over. We'll stop. Uh, were, you, were you more of a Sanders fan or a Biden fan? Me? Yeah. Kind of like Elizabeth Warren. Oh, you liked Elizabeth Warren. Interesting. Yeah, okay. I mean, she reminded me of my mother. My mother was a history professor. Got it. Uh, you know, came here without a dime in her pocket. Uh, lifted herself up by her bootstraps. So, you know, I didn't agree by any means with everything Elizabeth Warren said. But I, I, I like the fact that she was a self-made woman. And she's smart. Now, <laughs> you don't see her around much these days. No, you don't. But I'm surprised. Uh, but you but, don't. But, but I like Elizabeth Warren, yeah. Who, who, in your opinion, is the greatest president, greatest statesman we've ever had? Greatest president, greatest, greatest statesman. Give me both. They, they could be separate because statements could not necessarily be a president. Statesman Roosevelt, President Eisenhower. I think that's fair that you're saying that because, you know, uh, what that does to the audience 20th is... 20th century. Yeah. I, I, I think that's fair you're saying that. Now, look, there's a lot of things that we're talking about that you and I may not uh, agree on, but... I can respect your approach and why you believe in the things that you do. Let me, let me ask you this last question here. You want to know why I think Eisenhower was the greatest president? Of the 20th? I'd be I'm very curious. Five-star general. Yep. Knew a thing or two about, you know, how power works. Ran the D-Day invasion. Understood war and conflict. After he settled the Korean War, which he did in the first weeks of his presidency, not a single American soldier died of shot and shell in combat under President Eisenhower. 
because he knew how to wage peace. That's why. She also got to, you got to tell a little bit more than that because the enemy was scared shitless of the guy. They, 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 yeah, he, they he ran the D-Day invasion. That's what I'm saying to you. Meaning like the, the no, enemy. Were, listen, the Russians weren't yeah. scared of him. They respected him. I, I can say, I, 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 respected I, him. I think he had both of them though. I think there's a part of it where you have respect and there's a little bit of fear. There's nothing wrong with having a little bit of fear for a leader, but I would say, yes, they probably had a little bit of both, but, but here's a question for you. you, you you've heard the saying before. Uh, enemy of an enemy is a friend, right? So a friend of an enemy could be an enemy. So what do you say with the fact that both Iran and China would prefer a Biden presidency over a Trump? So would the Germans, the French, the English, all our allies. Have you seen you the polling the English, on this? You think Boris wants uh, Biden over Trump? I'm talking about the people. Yeah, I'm talking. I'm talking about. The on this? I'm, ta I'm talking about the Chinese government, the Iranian government, not even the people. The people, uh, uh, the the well, they government don't have of China and Iran wants the matter, Biden. Do they? They don't have a say in the matter. Who? The Chinese government and the Iranian government. They they kind of do though. If you think about it, what I'm asking you is, why do you think Iran, the leaders of Iran and the leaders of China hate Trump and they love Biden? Why would they prefer a Biden presidency? All right. It's a You're, sincere question. You are stating that the leaders of Iran and China love Biden. I don't see the basis for that statement. I see what I see around the world, and I've studied this, okay? I've spent a lifetime studying this. Our power as a country is not based on nuclear weapons. It's not built on stealth aircraft. Our strength as a nation is the image that we project in the world. Everyone who has studied this question, and I mean everyone, right, left, center, liberal, conservative, see what is happening to the image of the United States in the world, the way in which we project our power by saying, we are a shining city on a hill. We're not today. We have handled the coronavirus crisis worse than anybody in the world. We have less than 5% of the world's population. We have a quarter of the deaths. Our image as a country has been damaged by this president. And I fear for our republic. I love this country. This is why I wrote this book, The Folly and the Glory, to make people understand that we are at war with Russia. That war is fought with political warfare. We won the 20th century. We helped bring down the Soviet Union, the evil empire. They are winning the 21st century. And that is a danger, mortal danger to the United States of America. People need to know this. There's a lot to be said with what you're saying. Uh, the audience can make up, make up their mind for themselves. Uh, for me, uh, I, I really worry about China way more than I worry about Russia. And I know, you know, the difference between Russia and China, the way I break it down is the following. Russia will come to you and tell you, we're powerful. If you mess with us, we'll kill you. That's Russia. They're China, a weak country. China will come to you and China will say, 
we respect you, you're so great, and take every information out of your house and leave. There's a big difference, and I'm talking not the people, I'm talking about the government, I'm not talking about the people. So I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with you on the fact that you can never take Russia lightly, because Russia's motivation is to be the most powerful regime in the world, power, power, but I don't think uh, China's right behind them. I think those two are very close to each other. I'm not an expert on China. Yeah. Full stop. I am an expert on this war between America and Russia. Fair enough. The tools that they are using are not the weapons of war. They are disinformation, sabotage, subversion. And those are the weapons of the weak. This is asymmetrical warfare. And they are cleaning our clock, my friend. They are hurting us. And the president of the United States has done nothing to prevent it. And he is actively aiding and abetting them right now. Don't take my word for it. Take the words of his national security advisor, General H.R. McMaster. He uttered those words today. Trump is aiding and abetting Putin. This is an emergency. I want people to read this book to understand how that emergency came to pass. Here's what we're going to do. Okay, we're going to put the link to your book below. Are you more on Twitter or more on Instagram? Which one are you more active on? Oh, Twitter. Yeah, Instagram. Okay. I'm too old for Instagram. Now, listen, I, I thought you're hip. I'm, I, I give you the credit of, with the flowers you got in the back. I fully qualified you as a hip, uh, you know, a person from the '70s. So we're going to put the link to your book below. The folly and the glory. Uh, the folly and the glory. And then also we're going to put the link to your Twitter. So if anybody wants to send you a message directly as well, they can do that. Even better. A podcast called Whirlwind. It's on okay. Apple Podcasts, on radio.com. It's really good, if I do say so myself. It's the number one new and noteworthy podcast on Apple Podcasts today. Check it out. It's extremely entertaining. Tim, if you send us that interview with the general that you did, we'll put that at the bottom for people to be able to go listen to it. So if you just send us the link, the team will put it below. They'll be able to listen to it as well. I got to talk to my producer about that, but we'll okay, see. Okay, that sounds good. If, you, if you're right. producer, Prue, you sounds like you're a producer. You're like an Italian family. Let me talk to the people, see what I can do. You I got to talk to the capo. <laughs> By the way, you, get, you got a way of doing accents. I saw a couple of your talks. You did a couple good accents, so you, you got a gift there as well. But uh, in closing, uh, Tim, thank you so much for being a guest on Value, Tim, and I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you sharing your perspective with us, and hopefully – we still have to have a bet. So how about we make the bet on the presidency? Are you confident enough to make it Biden Trump? I'm willing to take any side just to have some kind of a bet with you dinner because some well, tells what's, me the what's the over under 115 minus 115, meaning Biden's in favorite in favor right now of winning Vegas. What is it in Vegas? Vegas has him. You bet a hundred. It's uh, you win 85. You got to win bet 115 to win a hundred. I'll take that. So do you want to do dinner? You take Biden. Yeah. I take Trump. If Biden wins, dinner's on me. If Trump wins, dinner's on you. You got to bet. Bet? New York, favorite restaurant? We go to it. I'm good with that. Yeah, it better right, bring $150, though. It's all good. You tell me where you want to go. I'll treat you. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. All Tim, right. uh, once so again, much. thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. So do you agree with them? Do you agree with what he had to say? Comment below. Yes, no, maybe. I don't know. He made some points for himself, but you could tell there was emotions behind there as well. I did definitely enjoy uh, speaking with him. Again, if you haven't gotten the book, we'll put the link below for you to go out there and get it. But I got two other interviews I want you to watch if you enjoyed this one. I have one interview I did with a former 28-year, I believe, CIA agent, Jonah Mendes, who 
She was a chief disguise officer, what she did for the longest time. If you've never watched this interview, I did it right outside the White House, and you almost see the view of the White House. If you've never seen this, click over here. If you want to see the interview I did with the uh, 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 John Perkins, who worked uh, with different countries going negotiating, and he was an economic hitman. Very interesting story. Click over here to watch it. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.